May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. And then there are the finer things of life. Sipping sweet tea on the front porch, listening to baseball on the radio at the same time is even better, right? Walking hand in hand with your sweetheart through through the park on a warm summer afternoon. Watching children play soccer, t-ball, or baseball, or whatever it is they play. These are, these are treasures that anyone can enjoy. I mean, they're, they're, the, they're great treasures, the, the most valuable ones of life. Uh, the pleasure's effortless, and yet it's rich at the same time. What are your favorite things? Watching the Browns on a Sunday afternoon? On the occasion when they happen to win, those are really good days, aren't they? Maybe it's uh, going to a concert or... Fine dining, whatever it is, having something that that is valuable and good. You know, in a swimming pool on a warm summer afternoon, that's a great day, isn't it? Life is filled with little pleasures, small treasures that that don't cost much at all. But if you let them go by, well, you miss miss enjoying a great treasure. I remember uh, years ago, I'm watching David Letterman at night. And it uh, must have been years ago because I was up that late watching David Letterman. And uh, I was watching it and there was this musician on it. <coughs> Excuse me. And the musician um, was, uh, he was suffering from some terminal uh, disease. In fact, I, I know that since then um, he, he has passed away. And I, I, remember, I remember David Letterman asking this guy a question. He says to him, what, if anything, have you learned from this disease? And the man was quick. He, he just answered right away. He said, I've learned how wonderfully delicious every bite of food is. You know, I thought about that for a moment. The way that he sort of recognized how, how the small things in life, how, how valuable, how, how wonderful, how precious small moments are. You know, I like food, but he really loved it. I mean, he understood it in a way that I hadn't. I mentioned before to you that a few years ago I, I took this trip to Africa. It was, a, it was a mission trip, a short-term mission trip, three weeks in Africa, two weeks of which were work, one week was holiday. But for two weeks, we worked very, very hard. It was, um, it was shoveling sand for me into a wheelbarrow, moving it 200 yards and going back and doing it again. And doing this all day long from before sunrise because it was so hot, 90 plus degrees every day, to, to sunset. And then going back and you know eating dinner African style, which was awful food, and, uh, and then going back the next day and doing it all over again. Hard work. Hard work. But it wasn't the most difficult thing for me, to be honest with you. Before I went to Africa, I, I knew that I was in this malaria region, so I went to a, my physician and I told him, I'm going to be in this kind of malaria zone and, um, and I need an anti-malaria agent to take while I'm there so I don't contract this awful disease. And, and so he looked at me kind of strange, and I could tell, I could tell right away, he had no idea what he was going to prescribe for me. And he says to me, um, <clears throat> yeah, well, um, if you excuse me for just a minute, I'll be right back. And so he goes out, and he's gone for several minutes, and he comes back with my prescription. Here, this will, be, this will do the trick for you. You take one pill a day, or one pill, excuse me, once a week. You take it for two weeks before you leave, two weeks after you get back, one a week. So seven pills, seven weeks. Sure, fine. As I'm walking out of out of the you know the examining room and, and walking out to the to the lobby, I walk past his office and I notice a book that was lying open. And I happened to peek in there and look, and he was looking up the medicine to prescribe for me, which I w- didn't give me a whole lot of comfort. But um, 
I assume that maybe he, you know, got the right book. And uh, anyway, so I, I go on out and um, I go and I fill my prescription and I take my first pill and take my second pill the next week and then we're off to Africa. And um, what the physician didn't tell me and what the pharmacist didn't tell me was that this pill has a side effect in a small percentage of the population but is a very powerful psychological side effect that you begin to have acute paranoia in about 10% of the population and hyper anxiety guess what percentage of the population I fell into that's right so I didn't but you know I wasn't sharp enough I wasn't keen enough to think that that the symptoms that I began to develop in the third and fourth week had anything to do with the pill that I was taking I just thought I was losing my mind. You know, I became really, uh, you know, paranoid, very anxious, very nervous about the smallest things. Um, it, I couldn't sleep two hours a night maximum. And so I'm up, you know, constantly, and that begins to have its own sort of side effect on you. It was a difficult, difficult time for me. I thought I was, I, I thought I was going crazy. I really believed that I was becoming mentally ill. And then when I got home, I had to find a psychiatrist right away. My wife has been thinking that for years, and so uh, she was encouraged by this. The thing was that I noticed in the middle of all of this was what I began to miss the most. For some reason, in the midst of my paranoia and my anxiety, I became convinced I would never see my family again. That I wouldn't be able to somehow, you know, the plane would go down. All sorts of things I never think about were suddenly right in the front of my mind. I thought I would never see my family. And I, I became very, very distraught about that because I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about um, you know, the sort of things that we, we spend a lot of time working towards. So, you know, I didn't care about uh, houses or cars. It didn't, didn't bother me that I would never drive a Jaguar. I didn't even think about it. What I thought about was whether I'd see my son playing soccer again or see my boys wrestling or see my wife you know, be able to stroll through the park. I was very, very aware of what mattered most to me in life. In Mark's Gospel, he tells us early on about the call of these disciples. He talks about Matthew and Peter and Andrew, James and John, and how they were going about their lives, doing the things that they're doing. And Jesus comes along one day and says, Come, follow me. And they seem to say, Hey, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's go. And they drop their nets. Matthew leaves his tax booth behind. They quit what they're doing and they begin to follow Jesus. And it seems like such a great idea. I mean, what, as soon as they, they're with Jesus, it's not long and He's healing people. He's, he's performing miracles. There are great things happening. Following Jesus has suddenly become a very popular thing. Lots of people are following Jesus. I mean, there's a close group of disciples for sure, but, but there are lots of people out there. And it's going really well. For about seven chapters of Mark's Gospel, which is a couple years, it's going really well. And then Jesus says this. I read it to you today in the Gospel lesson. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. I can almost hear them say, what did you say? Because it sounded like you said, and be killed. I mean, that doesn't really fit with what we thought the whole plan was. You know, they're ready to make you king. You know that, right? They're ready for you to be the leader of the country, of the people. Get killed? No, that's not the right... And Peter, 
Peter is Jesus' friend, maybe one of his best friends. And he does what best friends do. You've had this time where your best friend said, you're never going to believe who I'm going out with next week. And then they tell you, and you say to yourself, oh my goodness, no, you cannot go out with that person. You know that scene, right? I'm going to go out with Jim Hollander next week. You're like, no, no, we have to come. Come here, we have to talk. You know that conversation you've had? Peter has that conversation with Jesus. He takes him aside. Did you see that in the text? And Peter took Jesus aside. Have you ever been taken aside by somebody? Come here. Come off to the side. This is not the way you become king, Jesus. This is not the way you go about it. Being rejected, going to Jerusalem, being killed. No, not the right way to do that. And Peter thinks he's doing Jesus a favor. In fact, he is trying to do Jesus a favor. Let me show you an easier way. Well, you know what happens, don't you? What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Not a very nice thing to say to your friend. Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking right. But what I want you to notice is what happens next. I think Jesus knows how to whistle really loud like my wife does. You know, she can, she can put her fingers in her mouth and, and it would be so deafening in here that you, I mean, you, your ears would ring for moments afterward. She can even do it without, you know, just, just like curl her tongue out and make this really loud noise and, and drive us all insane. She could do it. And I think Jesus does it. Mark doesn't record it, but I think he just forgot to. Because I think that's what happens. I think Jesus whistles really loud. It should be right there in, in the text, right before verse 34. Because it says, and he called the crowd to him. You see that? He, how do you call the crowd to you? Well, you whistle really loud. That's how you do it. He whistles really loud. He says, all y'all. I think he says it in a very southern sort of way. All y'all, get over here. It's emphatic. I've got something to tell you. Everyone, come here. And so you're in the crowd, and I'm in the crowd, and we're all here. And he, and he whistles for us, and, and we come over, and here's what he says to us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Anyone wants to come after me, here's what you have to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me. This is full disclosure, folks. This is the this is the fine print. You know the guy on the radio who reads real fast at the end of a commercial. You know, uh, not Apple in Delaware, Maine. You know that guy. This is this is a really slow self disclosure statement. Not a sunny day when it seems like it's a great idea. Not a uh, not an easy way to follow. But this: Do you really want to keep following me? Listen to me, all of you who are following me. Do you really want to do this? Because here's exactly what it costs you. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me. Now self-denial is not self-loathing. Jesus isn't saying, hate yourself. He's not saying, you know, you know devalue yourself. In fact, quite the opposite. What he's saying is deny yourself. To deny yourself, in this word he uses, is to renounce a claim. That you no longer own it. I mean, imagine that you've paid off your house, your mortgage, and you have this claim. And, 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 and to say, no, it's no longer mine. I mean, this is, this is the language. that you, you renounce a claim that's rightfully yours. You give up the deed, not to your home. You give up the deed to yourself. 
Deny yourself. No longer. It's like joining the military. Or so I'm told. They say that um, when you didn't, when you join the military, that you give up your right to your body. If you're in a battle and your commanding officer, let's say your sergeant, whoever says, "Take that hill," you don't say to them, "Well, you know they have guns up there. You know um, they, they're likely to shoot at me." And so I think this is a bad idea. Perhaps we should uh, we should find another route. No. What do you do if they give you an order? Your answer is what? Yes, sir. And you go. Take that hill. Yes, I'm on my way. Self-denial means you do not control your life. Self-denial means you have no rights over yourself. It means that you are no longer your own boss. Autonomy is off the table. Someone else is in charge. Imagine a soldier in Vietnam or Korea, Iraq or Afghanistan. Commanding officer says, take that hill. Why in the world would they put themselves in harm's way in order to do that? Because if they take the hill, even at the loss of their own life, someone else might prevail and the enemy might be destroyed. And if they win the battle, maybe they win the war. And if they win the war, the nation is saved. Everything in, uh, in the life of, of the military hinges on the fact that people no longer own their own bodies. And so how hard is it for us to understand that Jesus says... Deny yourself. Embrace even your own death. Take up your cross is not to say, you know, wear a nice little chain around your neck. As good as that might be. It's not about putting one on your lapel. It's not even about tattooing one on your arm. Maybe that'd be cool for you. It doesn't mean that. It means embrace your own demise if necessary. Because total allegiance to God, even at the peril of one's life, is what is required. I think it's very easy for us to think about Christianity as God serving us. That is, that we come to faith and and look what the Lord does for us. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He does love you and He does have a wonderful plan for your life. But that is not what following Him is all about. We know, that, um, we know that entire denominations have been hijacked by people who want to bless a sort of lifestyles that often are in conflict with the gospel. And we look at them and say, oh, I can't believe that. The nerve. Yes, it is. It's repulsive, isn't it? But it's not just that. It's not just people who want to uh, hijack a religion in order to bless or sanction an immoral lifestyle. I think there are plenty of people who have hijacked Christianity and turned it into serving a God who's nice. Listen, God is good. God is graceful. God is benevolent. But God is not nice. At least not in the way that we define niceness. And Christianity has often been boiled down to that. Isn't it nice that we can be nice to the nice? That's not the Christian faith. That's not Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's good that God is good. But that's not what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross. If anyone wants to come after me, this is how they have to do it. You know, when I was in Africa, all juiced up on mefloquine, (laughs) and in this big state of paranoia, freaking out, super anxiety, you know, 
I was really messed up in my head. I mean, more messed up than normal, you know. And you're probably thinking, wow, that must be really bad. Um, I was, but there was one clear, lucid thought in the midst of that. I knew what mattered most to me in life. You see, Jesus' message to his friends, and to us, and to me, isn't on day one. Come follow me. Yes, they come follow but he has another message. Now that you've been following me for a while, let me tell you what's really involved. Because here's what's really involved. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save their life will lose it. But whoever willingly loses their life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. This is a clarifying call. The Lord is asking us, He's asking us today, in the second Sunday of Lent, in the year of our Lord, 2012, He's asking us today, are you sure you want to follow Me? Are you sure? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.